This morning, we're going uh, to be diving back into uh, Acts here, and we're going to continue our, our study in, uh, in Acts and continuing to look at the church. Um, Hayden, would you come up here with me just for a second? Would you pop up here with me just for a quick, quick moment? Come on up. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. All right. So I have a question for you. When I want you to tell me what you instantly think of when I say something, okay? Can you do that for me? Okay. So if I tell you, just think of the first thing that comes to mind when I say McDonald's. Like a cheeseburger? Yeah? Okay. Cheeseburger. Okay. All right. How about when I say a superhero? Anything come to mind? Who? What one comes to mind for you? Which one? Your papa. Ah, nicely done. Well done. Awesome, Hayden. Um, when... When you think of, I say the word pizza, what do you think of? Do you like pizza? Do you like cheese? Do you like pepperoni? No, okay. (laughs) Cheese. Cheese is it? Okay, all right. Now, when I say the name um, Jesus, what do you think of? Do you think Jesus loves you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably what a lot of us think with that too. Well, Hayden, thanks for coming up here with me just right now. I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for doing that. Okay. So when we think of the name of something, and a name has power, when we hear the word Walmart, we automatically think of something. When we hear the word Big O Tires, we already think of something. We hear the word Disneyland, we think and know what that represents. When we hear the word Jesus and the name of Jesus, What do we really think? What do we really understand the name of Christ to be? The the reality is that for many of us, when we hear a name, it's encompassing all of that. When you hear the name Costco, you know that you can go and you're expecting a warehouse full of large quantities of stuff. And that stuff can range from anything that's technology, to food, to games, to clothes, to medicines. And when you go from one Costco to the next, you expect the same thing. Unfortunately though, when you go from one Costco to the next, you'll find that there are some differences, right? (laughs) Well, In Christ, 
Christ has presented to us through His Word and through the Spirit who He is. And that doesn't change. And when we understand the name of Jesus, and when we stand in faith on the name of Jesus, His name never changes. Christ is the same 2,000 years ago as He is today. So this morning, what we're going to be dealing with is the Gospel of Christ as He confirms it in our life. How can we have confidence and confirmation that the Gospel is at work in us? And how can we be confident knowing that that work is actually being fulfilled through us? Well, that's what happens in this passage. Paul is confronted with some counterfeit Gospels. And what he does is he lays out the true gospel for those who are in his presence. And it's through the true gospel that believers experience power. Power by the Spirit that comes through faith in Christ. So let's go ahead and look at this passage together. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to be starting in verse 1. We're going to be going through verse 20. If you're at home, you can stand with us in front of your couch or your screen or however you'd like. But let's go ahead and stand as we read this passage this morning. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who'd come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And, the God, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man of whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that You would take Your Word this morning. That it would be Your Spirit who brings forth Your Word in power in each of our lives. Father, that You would speak through me. And that, Lord, that Your Word would be implanted and Your Spirit would be known and seen. Lord God, for those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, who hear Your Word this morning, I pray that they would respond to the Gospel that You've given. For those who have responded to Your Gospel through faith, I pray that we might live by the power granted through Your Spirit. May we be a people who declare Your glory, who extol Your name. And may we see that each and every day You confirm your truth, your gospel, through your work in the lives of believers. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, at the heart of this passage this morning is a really simple statement. Christ's gospel is confirmed in His people through faith by the Holy Spirit. Christ's gospel is confirmed in His people through faith by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 1, we're told, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So Paul has, has left... The, the Corinth area, he's come into Ephesus. If you recall, Apollos had been in Ephesus. And Apollos himself, we're told actually previously in chapter 18, in verse 24, we're told that now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos had been preaching basically the, the message of Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had not been preaching the completed work of Christ on the cross. And so these disciples that Paul runs across probably were students of Apollos prior to this, this time in which Priscilla and Aquila grabbed him and gave him greater understanding. So it makes sense that as Paul comes back to Ephesus, there are those who have a, a limited understanding of the gospel. And so it says here that he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's an interesting question. We know in Acts that in Acts there are a few times where we see that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers 
through the laying on of hands. And this is an important point because it is not the norm that we see throughout the New Testament. It is to show that the Holy Spirit has come. It's to, to show and to initiate in God's church through the presence of His Holy Spirit. And we'll be chatting about that more here in a little bit. But the idea here was that Paul had discerned something. He had discerned that these were people who were saying that they were followers of Jesus, but they lacked the Holy Spirit. That's why he's asking. Not because it was rare. Not because it was off at the side that this was a common thing. But rather because he saw these disciples, these followers, quote-unquote, of Jesus, who seemed to lack the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is in agreement, it's kind of an interesting thing, right? There's a, an interesting thing that the Holy Spirit does. There's a discernment that the Holy Spirit gives you. Isn't it odd sometimes that as a follower of Christ, you can tell when somebody else a believer in Christ, you know them not at all? I remember uh, years ago, well, five or six years ago, when I was in the hospital. And, and some of you know the story, but there was, a, there was a doctor who came into the room and he looked at me and he started talking to me. And it was just a very different, interesting discussion. And I was a bit tired that day. I was kind of annoyed that day, frankly. Um, and so I, I just didn't really want to be bothered too much. And he was super joyful. And, um, and, and so it actually was kind of annoying me. It was like, oh man, like, dude, take it down a notch, you know? And as we chatted for a few minutes, and it was very brief, Elise was sitting in the room, and I remember turning to her, and I said, I think this guy knows Jesus. And what spurred out of that was then the next day when he came in, we had a, a longer conversation, and it just led me to ask the very safe question of, do I know you from someplace else? And he's like, no, I don't think so. I'm like, have we ever met at church? He goes, I don't think so. Which gave me hope that he did go to church at that point so I could press further. So, so do you go to church? Yes, I go to church. Which opened up an entire conversation. And he and I, over the next years now, have developed a close relationship. Uh, a relationship that was one of encouragement and of, uh, of hope that God actually brought another believer into my life during this season who would sit with me and and has been a source of counsel, and it's been wonderful to still be able to pray for his family, and he prays for us, and to see that devotion. But there was a discernment that this, this man knows Jesus because the Holy Spirit was in agreement. Well, Paul says here, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they say to them, no, we've never heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Who is this? And not, they're not necessarily saying in this passage is that they don't know that there's a Holy Spirit to come. But rather what they're saying is that they didn't know the Holy Spirit had come. And so it says, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So what happens here is that they begin to, to expose here that what they were baptized into was a belief that Jesus the Messiah had come, but they had not actually understood that the 
the belief was not one of John's baptism of repentance, but it was one of salvation through Christ. And so rather than believing in John's baptism, what God was saying was that, or excuse me, what Paul was telling them was that they needed to believe in the finished work of Christ for salvation. This was not a coming work, it was a finished work. It was not a future work, it was a now and present work. Done, completed. And so, Paul tells them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. You see, there are those who believe Christ existed, yet fail to have faith in the person and work of Jesus. There are plenty within churches today that believe that Christ existed, but they don't believe on the finished work of Christ for their salvation. They have not repented and believed on Christ confessing Him as Lord of their life. That's why you can hear today people invoke the name of Jesus and have nothing to do with Jesus. They believe in His historical presence, but they don't believe in His redeeming and redemptive presence. So, what Paul does here is he confirms the gospel in contrast to counterfeits. He confirms the gospel in contrast to counterfeits. So how is the gospel confirmed in contrast to counterfeits? Let's take a look at it. The first one is that faith in Christ differentiates between true believers and unbelievers. Through faith, we are identified with Christ. Faith in Christ differentiates between true believers and unbelievers. Through faith, we are identified with Christ. Faith is what differentiates the true believer from an unbeliever. Faith in Christ. And it's through faith that we are identified with Jesus. Notice here, the difference between the disciples of John and the true believers in faith, excuse me, in, in, in Christ is what? Is the finished work of Christ. Romans 10, 8-13 tells us the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Counterfeit Gospels do not rely on faith in Jesus Christ. Counterfeit Gospels add to faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is directly a result of faith alone. Grace through faith alone. And so we see this contrast. We see the disciples of John who are not believing because of ignorance and once they understand, respond to the Gospel. We also see the evil spirit who says, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Excuse me, who responds to that response. And he says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. 
But who are you? Yeah, they use the name of Jesus, but because they have not applied Christ's salvation to their life, there is no power in the name of Jesus for them. And as a result of that, as a result, they're not identified with Jesus. They're not identified with Christ. See, even the demons know counterfeits. See, it's only through faith in the gospel of Christ that we are identified with Him. It's not through our works. It's not through... It's not through our perceived righteousness. It's only through Christ. And I think sometimes we can call on the name of Jesus and we have no desire to live by faith. I remember as a young man praying and asking God to remove sin from my life, but not really wanting God to remove it from my life. That's no different than the priests of Sceva. When we call upon the name of the Lord and we have no desire to live by faith, we profane the name of Jesus. We minimize His power. But more than that, we actually give the enemy access into our lives because we demonstrate that God is nothing more than a genie in a bottle. Asking Him to do but we're unwilling to walk through in faith. John 1, verses 12-13 through 13 affirms this when it says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The power of Christ is applied through faith, not simply pronouncement. And the enemy knows counterfeits well. One of the greatest dangers of easy believism is to simply say, I said a prayer and I'm done. Our salvation is through the confession of our heart and of our mouths. Our heart confesses that Jesus is Lord. Our mouth professes the same. And too often... We think that because we said the right words, that in some way there's security in that. And that's not it. God's not wanting lip service. He's wanting heart commitment. And He's wanting a heart submitted. A confession of the heart that declares Christ is Lord. That's faith. That's faith. The second way that the gospel is confirmed in contrast to counterfeits we see here is that the Holy Spirit confirms the presence of the gospel in our lives. The first is that the difference between believers and unbelievers is faith in Christ. The second is that the Holy Spirit confirms the presence of the gospel in our lives. Notice verses 5-7. through seven. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now what he's not saying is that they were saved through baptism. What they're saying here is, is that at this point, those followers of John 
now shift their perspective from John of one of repentance into the finished work of Christ and now believe and are baptized in the name of Jesus, believing that Jesus is exactly who He's claiming. That's what they're saying. They're identifying with Christ. So they're baptized into the name of Jesus. And we're told at that point that when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Now this baptism was a declaration signifying the faith that they had now put in Christ in His Gospel. And Paul immediately lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. When a person comes to Christ in faith, when they come to Christ in faith, we're told in Ephesians 1, 13-14 that in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. When we receive Christ, we receive His Spirit. When we receive Christ, we receive His Spirit. Now the Spirit comes upon these disciples of John, I think for a few different reasons in this way. One is that there was a distinction here. This was a group of people who had been faithful to the teaching of John in the region of of Ephesus. And he was establishing his church. And as they come to Christ, there is a visible presence of the Holy Spirit that is placed upon them, affirming who they are in Jesus. The tongues, the prophecy. And what happens in this moment is is that God is trying to grant confidence in His people that these people have been appointed in this town of Ephesus. Now, the Holy Spirit, when He comes and confirms His presence, He empowers us to do two things. The first is He empowers us for His work. He empowers us for His work. Notice what He does with these twelve he, he, he lays His Spirit upon them and He doesn't just sit them down and say, okay, go back to it. Go up and study the Word and come back and start serving Me when you're ready. He sends them out right away. He takes them with them. Not into a gentle environment, but into a hard environment. They don't go into some nice rosy little place off to the side and read their books and sit down and say, I need to know God better. They begin to rely on the Spirit for that work right now. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And then we're told, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. When we come to Christ, we still have God's mission and heart. In fact, when we come to Christ, what He does is He gives it to us and we're to walk in it. We're not to be reckless in it. And we're to be shepherding alongside others 
but His Holy Spirit empowers His purposed work. He places His Holy Spirit in us so that we might be proclaimers of His truth. That we might have confidence that it's not us who's doing it anymore, but it's Christ in us. It's the work of Christ empowered through the Spirit. That's freeing. The Holy Spirit comes and says, listen, you don't have to wait 20 years. I've given you purpose now. And the best part of that is that we can trust in the Holy Spirit to go with us as He's directing and leading and guiding and carrying out the work. That's why God gives spiritual gifts in part so that we can begin that work anew. John 14, 12-16 says, Jesus tells us here that truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that is the Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You are granted the Holy Spirit for God's work. For God's work. And he says here, Truly, truly, to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What do we see Paul doing in, in, in verse 11? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that were touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That would be like me taking Caleb's mask off, handing it back to him and saying, go forward and heal everybody of COVID just by touching them with your mask. That's part of what Jesus is talking about. Greater works you shall do. Why? Because it's actually Christ's Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit, that's doing the work. That's what He's wanting to do. That's what He wants us to live like as followers of Christ. And I think sometimes we, we wonder, like, is Christ doing anything in me? I feel spiritually flat. I don't know what's going on. And at the end of the day, part of it is because we're not actually engaging the Holy Spirit in the work that God has called us to do. We see God do the miraculous every day when we trust in Christ to do His work. He brings people to Christ that we would never, ever imagine. He does things that we could never imagine. He gives us words to say that we didn't even know we knew. That we sit back sometimes. I don't know if you've ever had this, if you've had the opportunity to share the Gospel with somebody, and as you're sharing the Gospel with somebody, you say something, you're like, oh, that was good. That was not me. And that was good, right? And yet other times you're like, gosh, man, I really fumbled that up. And somebody comes to you and goes, man, those are the words I needed to hear. That's because the Spirit is the one at work. And so He's given us His Spirit for His, his work, His purposed work. And I'm afraid sometimes that as a church, it's easy to become complacent and to seek comfort rather than seek the purposed work of Christ. The second way the Holy Spirit empowers us 
confirming His work is to overcome schemes of the enemy. To overcome schemes of the enemy. Notice in verse 16 that apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no power over the schemes of the enemy. They invoke the name of Jesus. The enemy says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And you can just kind of picture that picture, right? I mean, it's like, who are you? And then it's like, bah! Right? Just dive in, jumps on these guys. They're master. They're overcome. They don't know what to do. And they're naked. And they flee. Like, this was a mauling. Apart from Christ, we have no power over the schemes of the enemy. It is only in the Spirit that we have power over the enemy. Romans 6, 1-7 through says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The Holy Spirit gives us power over the schemes of the enemy. That's awesome too. The Holy Spirit has given us purpose for His work, empowers us in the purpose of His work, and He empowers us to overcome the schemes of the enemy. Notice how the Spirit does this for a second. In verse 17, it says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The Holy Spirit does it through conviction. He convicts us of sin. He shows us our sin. Then it says in verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. He frees us to confess. So the first thing to know is that when God convicts us of sin, when we hear that conviction, when the Lord convicts us of it, and we go, I'm putting that one down. We ought to know right then, first thing, we're being deceived by the enemy. Second thing, we're in the sights of the enemy. We are in the gun sights of the enemy the moment we hear conviction and turn from it. And you may not in the moment feel like it's that big of a deal, but let me tell you, it is. The enemy is now using you for his purposes, and you're not really being used for God's purposes. Conviction of sin is one of the things the Spirit does in us so that we do not fall prey to the schemes of the enemy. He then moves us to a place of confession. And it's through the Gospel that we're free. See, in the Gospel, we have total freedom to say, I screwed up no matter how bad it is. No how embarrassing it is. No matter how bad it is. The shame has been put on the cross. I'm going to feel shame in the moment as I bring it to the Lord. I might even feel some embarrassment as I confess it. But now I'm free. And it's in the Gospel and through the Spirit that I'm empowered to do it. Think about it. Apart from Christ, why would you do it? Why would you do it? 
Because the cost seems too great, and yet we know that the gospel is one where the cost is great, but redemption is near. It's in the gospel that we can be redeemed of that. And so we confess our sins. And as 1 John 1.9 tells us, that God is faithful to forgive us of those sins as we confess them to Him. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We put them on the table. So the Holy Spirit convicts us and then He frees us to confess. And then finally, we see here in verse 19, it says, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. There's contempt for sin. No longer do we like the sin. We're convicted of it, we confess it, and we hate it. Now, it's interesting here because I think sometimes these book burnings, and we've seen this maybe probably being misused in Christianity, but there's an important point in this. The reason they did this was to get rid of the temptation of evil and to get rid of those objects of evil that were leading them into unrighteousness. They destroyed it. We need to realize we need to do this in our own lives, right? That it's not good enough just to be convicted of it and confess it and even have a hate for it. We need to remove it, get rid of it, hate it, deal nothing with it. Be done with it. Gone. Never to be used again. Now, 50,000 pieces of silver. Today's value, that's over $4 million. $4 million worth of witchcraft work. Gone. It cost them to get rid of it, but they knew that the greater cost was not in money, but was in their righteousness. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, you'll have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. Is there any habit, any practice that you've got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come and trust in Him, you will make short work of it. Have done with it and have done with it forever. The beauty of Christ causes us to hate sin. The beauty of the gospel frees us to get rid of it, to put it away because the power of the Spirit at work within us. The third and final way that we see the gospel confirmed in this passage, the first through faith, the second through a spirit, The third is that Christ's church grows through faithful proclamation of the gospel by discerning believers. Christ's church grows through faithful proclamation of the gospel by discerning believers. God does not grow His church through programs, through methods or methodologies. He doesn't grow it through people who are crafty and gifted in terms of the worldly sense, speakers and presentations. He grows it through the message of Jesus Christ, through believers who are submitted to Him, discerning His will and His words. Ephesians 4, 7-16 points out, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. 
So He gave us these gifts for His purpose, but God begins to grow His church. Now notice what happens after all this evil. We're told in verse 20, so the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily after they dealt with the sin. They dealt with the evilness and the church grew. Notice here in verse 8, it says here, we know we talked about that a moment ago, that they went into the synagogue and proclaimed. Now after their hearts had become hardened, Paul decided let's not stay here. They discerned it. They discerned that the Lord was leading him to another place. Now it could have been discouraging, right? I mean, hearts have grown hardened. But what does God do? God gives them an avenue in a public square. In the Tyrannus Hall, we're told that actually in our time, it would be 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Right in the middle of the day. And it's open to Jews and Gentiles alike. And he says there that Paul and the disciples preached there for twelve, or excuse me, for two years. And all of Asia heard the Gospel. Wow! How did the church grow? Was it because Paul had a plan and it happened? No! It's because they faithfully proclaimed the Word of God and discerned His will. It's a truth for us too. We need to be a discerning people who faithfully proclaim His truth. That's how God grows His church. I remember years ago, in the early days when I came to Foothills and we were going through some pretty rough stuff. And in the privacy of my own heart, sitting down with some brothers in Christ who were in ministry and said, I, I got to tell you, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I'm not sure if God got the right guy. Because I just don't feel right equipped for this. And I remember what their answer was. They looked at me square in the eye and they said, keep preaching the Gospel. Keep preaching the Gospel. And the hope of the Gospel that it's not me, it's not what I do, it is Christ in us, it's His Spirit working in us that does the work. And God grows and heals and builds up and brings in through the work of His Gospel. And so that's who we are as a church. is a church that is centered on the Gospel with a work that is confirmed through faith in Christ by His Holy Spirit bringing power into the life of the believer so that God might grow His church through His means. My hope for us this morning is that we would put ourselves in this place and ask the question, am I a true believer? Have I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Do I experience the power of the Holy Spirit? And is the Holy Spirit confirming that by giving me victory over sin? Am I walking in the freedoms that He's given me to, to respond to conviction and to confess sin? And am I actually hating the sin that's present in my life, seeking His power? And then finally, am I letting God use me to build His church? Because as He uses me and uses us, 
to build His church, it actually is a confirmation of the work and power of the truth of His Gospel. In verse 9 of Ephesians 4, he says, "...in saying He ascended, what does it mean, but that He had also descended in the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended from above all the heavens, that He might fill all things." And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you have faith in Christ, and you've seen the Spirit working, the Spirit has confirmed His work in your life, you are a part of Christ's church. And God desires to use you to continue to build His church for His glory. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You that we can come confidently before You and Your Word this morning. Thank You that Your grace is completely sufficient for us. Lord God, may we cling to this gospel this morning. May we cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. Knowing full well that your desire is not that we might live as scattered or insecure followers, but God, that we would live as a people who are confirmate in your confirmation of your truth in their life. Lord, we rejoice that you confirm your work in us. And Father, we pray that wherever we're at today, that we might submit ourselves in faith, resting in the work of the believer and applying, excuse me, in the work of the Spirit, applying faith for His power. Thank you, God, that we can come to you this morning in your grace. And we ask this in your name. Amen.